This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Well, there was a lot of emotion in it. You know, I'm clearly really honoured and excited to be doing that. But as you know, Larissa, you were there with my late brother, Lindsay, nearly 30 years ago, and he was there on a Hutness Fellow. And so that was always in my mind when I applied for it. I felt in a way that I'm honouring his spirit by having applied for it, and I, I certainly want to follow through on that while I'm over there. A First Nations professor set to take up a prestigious position at Harvard University, and Uncle Jimmy Little, a Yorta Yorta man. A lot of people know the part about my father was in the 60s with the hit Royal Telephone, but he had success earlier than that, noticed his talent from a very young age, and so he had hits on the radio station, so his success was something that he just grew leaps and bounds and he just kept going with it. And both my parents, though, were pretty level-headed. They didn't really see themselves as being famous or any of that sort of stuff. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the years, a growing number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students have been lucky enough to study at Harvard University, one of the most prestigious universities in the United States. Professor Brenda Croft is set to take up the ultra-prestigious Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Chair of Australian Studies. She'll be heading to Harvard University this year to share Australia's First Nations cultural heritage. Artist, writer and historian Brenda Croft has been at the forefront of the renaissance of Aboriginal arts and culture for several decades. Professor Brenda Croft, welcome to Speaking Out. Hi, how are you, Larissa? I'm great, and it's great to have you on the show. And since it's the first time you're with us, I wonder if we can start by asking you where you're from and what shaped your worldview. Well, I am a Gurindjimalian Mutbara woman from the Northern Territory, the Victoria River region, which I'm sure many listeners will have heard about in recent times with the terrible flooding up there. That's where my my dad's people are from, so my people on my father's side. I'm privileged to live and work on uh, Nyambri, Ngunnawal country in Canberra, where I did a lot of my growing up. Uh, formative years in the 1970s when my family was down here while my dad worked with Department of Aboriginal Affairs. But I was born in Perth, um, Wajuk, uh, over on Noongar country. And I feel I've been really, really fortunate throughout my life to have travelled across this continent and many First Nations traditional homelands. So all of that has informed who I am and what I do now. What drew you to become an arts practitioner? I've known you for a very long time, I think, since I've been a teenager, and I've known you predominantly as an artist from that time, although obviously you've done a whole lot of other things. But what drew you to creative practice? I love that you brought that up because I always think of that with you and and having known you since you were a young woman, and hopefully I was a young woman at the time as well. um, (laughs) You know, it was an amazing time to be in Sydney when we were. Um, The weird thing, I was thinking about this the other day, I just 
always loved art. It was always in my life. It was always encouraged. I was one of those kids who entered every colouring in contest hoping to win a horse, <laughs> which is usually how it started. I wanted a horse so badly when I was a little girl. But um, my parents just really encouraged me. If I think back to the earliest point, my parents owned a news agency when we lived in northern New South Wales in Woodburn on uh, Bundjalung country. And my dad, he set up a little part of the news agency as an Aboriginal arts and craft shop. And my mum, they ordered, you know, smallish items from around the country. And I was really aware of those in the shop, but also at home. And my mum was very creative. She could she could make anything. She was an incredible seamstress and milliner, and I used to love going through her old pattern books. She learnt that at TAFE when she was in her mid-teens and just always made all our clothes, my brothers and my clothes, and so I used to love sort of making things on the sewing machine, drawing and, and colouring, and, you know, it just was kind of a natural pathway when I actually finished school. I had wonderful art teachers in high school and then early 1980s, mid-1980s, I was like, what am I doing? I'm in the public service in Canberra and it's not really feeding me (laughs) in terms of what I want to do. A really dear friend was heading to Sydney to go to the East Sydney Tech at that time. She was going to do fashion design there and and I basically, you know, went with her and we got a group house set up in Sydney and I um, enrolled to go to Sydney College of the Arts and that was the start of it. I, I knew people before that. I had met uh, people like, you know, Fiona Foley. I had met her when we were both in Year 12 and First Nations kids who'd gone through Year 12 were in from New South Wales and ACT were all covered to come to Sydney and go around to all the universities and art schools and places like ABC actually and Sydney Morning Herald just to see what we might like to do once we'd finished school and so that's when I first met Fiona and we just kept in touch. She went to Alexander Mackey College which then became College of Fine Arts and then she went to Sydney College of the Arts and so she was a year ahead of me. Avril Quayle was a year ahead of her. Michael Riley was also involved I think in some way at Sydney College of the Arts It was just a really flowering time, if you like. There was so much happening in Sydney at that time and so I was just really fortunate to be able to kind of follow a pathway that fed my passion and I'm forever grateful for that. It was such a heady time. I have to ask, did you ever get the horse? No. Okay. <laughs> I, used to, I, used to walk, I used to walk past every horse that was on achievement in this, in, in this little country town and I'd pat them and I'd pretend they were my horses. But, oh, God knows, we, we, had, we had nowhere to put a horse. No, my parents kind of let me have that little dream. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like it's still a dream, but I have to go back to the heady days of your coming to Sydney, which, of course, Nasder had started, which was the seat of... Bangara, it was actually a really amazing time. And I guess the oh. thing that I want to capture there is yeah. that not only were you coming to Sydney and engaging as an artist and yeah. learning your craft, yeah. you were involved with establishing Bamali, one of the most yeah. significant art collectives in the country. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happened and what that was sure. like. Well, I often tell people I was the ring-in. I was number 10 <laughs> out of the 10 founding members at the end, at the invitation of the others. And 
Um, I'm forever grateful for that. Um, the other founding members had been working for some time uh, and had been having lots of meetings. So there was Tracy Moffat, Avril Quayle, Fiona Foley, Bronwyn Bancroft, Euphemia Bostock, Jeffrey Samuels, Aron Raymond Meeks, Michael Riley, Fernanda Martins. Um, and they had been getting together with people like John Mundine and Jackie Katona and I think Cheryl Rose was a part of that, um, some of those early meetings, to look at finding a space that they could set up an artist-run initiative in the inner city. And I'll re always remember Michael and Fiona coming to a party at my house in 87, um, just before I was about to head up home, my first trip as a young adult, going back up to the Northern Territory to see family. And they asked me if I'd like to become a member, the 10th um, founding member, and I absolutely jumped at the, the opportunity. I then disappeared for a, um, a, a quite a long period of time, a few months, I think, up to the Territory, came back and was able to be involved in helping set up for the opening, uh, which was November 1987 in an old uh, sewing factory in Chippendale. And it was an amazing, amazing night. Uh, you can see footage of that night in Michael Riley's film, Bumali Five Coriatus, and all the, the young um, guns of the time working across visual arts, dance, theatre, writing were there. It was opened by um, John Newfong, who was a phenomenal journalist and activist. He helped establish Identity Magazine, in the 1970s, and I still um, love looking at the uh, copies of that magazine and his writing in that. You can see him in footage from the 10 Embassy in the early 70s and him speaking there. So he opened it, and we had um, leaders such as Charlie Perkins, um, elders, including my dad. I think Jimmy Everett was also there at the opening. Um, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time, and you felt really... Um, buoyed and, and mentored and inspired by all these phenomenal people working together in their various fields of creativity. That's right. I still remember that too. On my first paycheck from Legal Aid, I went and bought something <laughs> from Bamali, which I still have. You have had an extraordinary career as an artist, but you have also had a significant academic career. What drew you into academia and quite serious scholarship? I also went and uh, taught at the University of South Australia. I had great mentors there like uh, Professor Irene Watson who really encouraged me to apply for a, an Australian Research Council grant, which was the hardest thing I'd ever done at that time. But thanks to her encouragement, her very strong encouragement, I started my PhD with UNSW Art and Design and that enabled me to really work with family and community. And for me... Creative-led research, which means being able to use work I've done as an artist as part of the foundation for my research, it was just great. It was just such a, a godsend to be able to do that and also work with my dad's community art home on uh, traditional country in Victoria River region, but also part of the displaced Gurindji community. And I feel like I have a responsibility to do that in what I'm doing with my own research. But I also love working with First Nations colleagues in academia and I love the stimulation that that gives you. I think all of us are on a lifelong journey. I, I would never assume that I know everything in a, a chosen field. I want to learn and being within the academy has enabled me to do that, working with not just First Nations peoples 
in Australia, but also colleagues from overseas and something that stimulates me and drives me to, to do what I'm doing. And I love my job and, and I love being part of the academic group that's down here at the Australian National University and I see myself in, in this place for as long as I can possibly be. You are a hard worker, Brenda Croft, and you work across a range of mediums. So it wasn't surprising to me to hear that you would become the first Indigenous woman to hold the prestigious Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Chair of Australian Studies at Harvard University. How did you feel when you found out that you had been given this very hard to get but very prestigious position? Well, there was a lot of emotion in it. You know, I'm clearly really honoured and excited to be doing that, but as you know, Larissa, you were there with my late brother, Lindsay, nearly 30 years ago, and he was there on a hut and fellow. And so that was always in my mind when I applied for it. I felt in a way that I'm honouring his spirit by having applied for it. And I, I certainly want to follow through on that while I'm over there. The fact that it's named after two incredible leaders, Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser, who worked across party politics, they certainly that situation that happened in 1975 when Whitlam was ousted, they wouldn't have been called close colleagues or friends, but they came to a, a great respect later in life. And for me personally, both of them were very strong supporters of First Nation rights, Indigenous rights and social justice. Whitlam, absolutely, with Gurindji community. So there's a very kind of close uh, connection for me in that sense. But also Malcolm Fraser, when I worked on the 45th Gurindji Freedom Day Festival as project manager, uh, Malcolm Fraser did a wonderful video support letter for community. And um, I feel, you know, it's not just a chair that's named after two kind of distant people. These are people that I was fortunate enough to know of as a younger person but in, also met in later life and I feel very much a sense of responsibility in doing as much as I can in, during the 12 months that I'll be in, at Harvard and I can't wait. I'm just so kind of champing at the bit to get there. I'm very excited for you. I just want to share with everyone that I have one of your artworks in my office and it does have an image of Lindsay. It's very special to me. But can you tell us in this exciting period, what are you actually hoping to achieve? What are the strands of your work while you're there? Well, because I work not only in the creative arts sector, but obviously First Nations studies, Indigenous knowledge studies, I'll be working across two departments, the Department of History of Art and Architecture and the Department of Visual Arts, Film and Media Studies. But there's also a really great Native American program at Harvard and I'm so keen to work with Native American colleagues. So I'd, I'd already written to people from there, including their, the first Native American tenured professor, Philip Deloria, before I applied to say that I was applying just as a cultural protocol for me and that I hoped to engage with him and he was just so warm and encouraging um, and responded straight away. I also want to not just teach into those courses but there's a capacity to organise events and I want to organise a symposium towards the end of my time there and bring colleagues not just from Australia but other First Nations colleagues I've worked with over the decades to Harvard 
and I'll be organising a film program. So as I look out the window at the National Film and Sound Archives, I've already started talking with colleagues over there. I want to take some really incredible films by First Nations filmmakers and others as part of that program. The key to what I'm doing there for me on a really personal level is that I am determined to try and establish a scholarship for postdoc First Nations students from America and also from Australia to be able to do cultural exchange programs, ANU to Harvard and vice versa. And we've talked about this too, Larissa, if there's capacity for people who are coming over to study to work across other tertiary institutions to keep Lindsay's memory alive. He passed away shortly after he did his Harkness Fellowship and you were over there with him at that time. He wasn't even 27 years old. And for me, it's a, a means of keeping his memory alive, which going on to great things. And I mean it when I say that I stand on the, the shoulders of others. And it's certainly I stand on his shoulders as well, even though he was my younger brother. But um, I feel like I've got a very packed 12 months already and I just have to be incredibly focused on how I try to realise all of those things in that amount of time. I've absolutely no doubt, knowing you as I do, that you will make it the most amazing thing. So I hope that when you have finished it, you can come back and give us some reflections on how it's all gone because there were also lots of other things I wanted to ask you about, but we ran out of time. Well, maybe I can bring you over there, Larissa, while I, I'm there. We can do a show while we're there. It's a date. <laughs> now, just before well, you go, I, I know you had something that was very close to your heart, a fundraiser oh, that you yeah. wanted to mention. Yeah. Well, as people have heard recently, on the 1st of March, there were terrible floods that cut through so many of the communities along the Victoria River, including Kalkaringi, Dagaragu, Pigeonhole and other communities, and they were completely inundated. So there's a fundraiser that I'm lucky to be a bit involved with for Karankani Art and Culture Centre from Kalkaringi. It's a possible fundraiser. I've sent the link through to you, and we're trying to raise funds to restore the art centre, which art and cultural centre, because it's the heart of that community. It's an organisation I've worked with extensively for many years uh, since its establishment in 2011. We want to get it up and running. We're raising money to employ local people to help restore that and to buy and replace the materials and equipment that was there. It's the heartbeat. So I really encourage people to look up that possible fundraiser and anything, like any dollar, is very, very gladly welcomed. So I'd like to promote that. Thank you for letting me do that. Well, who can stop you with your energy and all the amazing things you do? In fact, I'm very privileged that you were able to find some time to come by speaking out and share some of your story with us. Thank you so much, Larissa. I really appreciate the time talking with you. That's academic artist, curator, just all around force of nature, Professor Brenda Croft. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up on the program, we talk to Frances Peters Little, daughter of legendary musician Uncle Jimmy Little. A biography of her father, Jimmy Little, a Yorta Yorta Man, is set to be released next month through Hardy Grant Publishing.
wish I knew what you were looking for Might have known what you would find Under the That was the legendary musician Uncle Jimmy Little with Under the Milky Way. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. Actor, musician and teacher, the late Uncle Jimmy Little was the consummate performer. He began his career in 1951 and despite indescribable barriers and discrimination, he would go on to become one of Australia's most acclaimed Aboriginal pop and country music icons. In 2004, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for his service to the entertainment industry as a singer, recording artist and songwriter and to the community as an ambassador for Indigenous culture and reconciliation. His daughter, Frances Peters Little, will soon release a biography of her father. But before we hear from Frances, Uncle Jimmy sat down with the ABC back in 1988 at the time of the bicentennial, documenting his rise to the top of the Australian music scene. Tell me, Jimmy, white people tend to forget, I think, that pe- that theatre is in the blood of the Aboriginal people. The um, Dreamtime adds a dimension to your culture which must encourage uh, many of your people to express the stories through acting and music and dance. Was that how you became interested? Yes, that's been my whole life, music. Mm-hmm. Had I been born in my forefather's era, I would have been playing the didgeridoo and clapsticks. In this era, I'm playing guitar. <laughs> what percentage of the Aboriginal people make music and dance? Well, because we are a people who didn't really document in writing form our history, it was orally passed on mm. with signs in our music and dance. So we are a very sensitive people in what we have to say mm-hmm. and uh, preserve. And that is the case today with uh, all my fellow performers in this modern era. We, uh, we tell the past as best we can and uh, we also express our desires for the future from the present standpoint. Where did you first learn music? In what way? Um, through that oral tradition? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it was, you could say, an inbuilt thing that my grandfather, my father's side of the family, played the violin. My father and my mother were both affordable entertainers mm. and I, as a child in the audience, used to enjoy viewing my parents and my relatives, older relatives, and it was just in my blood to continue the uh, tradition. Initially, was it more in the traditional style of Aboriginal music? No, the traditional was 
disrupted, mm. in a sense. By that I mean we, in the uh, time when I was growing up, and my parents as children, found that uh, we weren't able to continue the um, traditional side of our lives because of the early colonization. So we quickly made ourselves adaptable to the English-speaking world and still plied our trade in music and art. That's not the complete answer, though, is it? How many Aborigines are still practising and developing the traditional arts? Oh, there are thousands, literally thousands. It's still a growing art form? It is the thing that we believe is our spiritual beginning and our heritage and our right to practise and uh, the cycle, as people commonly say, the, the cycles of history go around, well, in our music, in our art form, the cycle of redeveloping and uh, reintroducing or introducing uh, um, our culture in, in art form is, is coming back with a vengeance. Would you say we've achieved all that much in 200 years in terms of uh, an exchange of understanding and education between white and, and black men about each other's cultures? It seems to me that when the first fleet arrived and they heard Aboriginal music and they thought, my goodness, what's that? And Aborigine pe the Aboriginal people heard white men with their fifes and drums and ran horrified into the bush, that we haven't really got much further than that. In most cases, as I see it, we have. Every day is a step forward, truly. I'm a positive thinker. You sure are. <laughs> and uh, I do believe there are. Sometimes you take two steps and one back maybe, but uh, everyone is looking forward to a better day. And uh, that is the case with uh, the Aboriginal thinking and the feeling that we must uh, stand and go forward in our expression, whatever form we take it in. And um, I do believe that uh, we are all going forward. How powerful a vehicle do you think theatre is, the sort of thing you're doing in, um, in getting the message across? Well, music, theatre and the arts is on a par with the political world we live in on a par, meaning that it's very persuasive, very influential, and it's very informative. Tastefully done, that is. So, uh, to me, music, in all its art form, is um, very important to, to the whole community to absorb, observe, and uh, take time to analyse. Time is one of the elements that seems to hold us all back. We're so busy in our self-existence and survival that sometimes we don't have time to listen to what people say. They speak so loud, but we don't hear. And that's the case right across the board. Whereas, in a subtle sense, art, music, in all its form, uh, never goes away and it gradually gets inside of people and then people begin to understand. The old saying, too, is what people don't understand, they're all too ready to brand. But... Music, tastefully again done, in its, uh, in its proper form, can bring people together in an understanding way. Jimmy, how important is it to be working within established structures, like, for instance, the, the fairly recent um, National Black Theatre Movement? It's a real turn-on for me. I'm a man who has an open mind in my self-development. I like variety. And uh, in this prime of my career, I'm enjoying a variety of 
ways of expressing my music in theatre. Uh, most of my life, which is, uh, well, I'm 50 now, and uh, 33 years of those 50 years were singing in uh, Sydney uh, nightclubs. And still are. I'm still current in that area. And uh, all the time is devoted to, um, to the communities throughout Australia. Now it's going into another, into another dimension in this time in my life and to a new audience as well as familiar faces in the audience. So I'm getting a great buzz out of uh, the new people who are saying, oh, who's Jimmy Little? And the next person sitting next, next to that person would say, oh, don't you know Jimmy Little? <laughs> so it's just a growing process if one, again, applies one's skill and talent in uh, all areas of the arts. Are you doing anything different in terms of the thoughts that you're expressing in your music now in 1988 to what you're doing in the last 30 years within this framework of, of the black theatre movement? Not really different, just extending. I'm extending my uh, program, mm. my, uh, my um, repertoire... In what way? ...into expressing more Australiana. Australiana, uh, particularly the Aboriginal Australiana. You moved this, away from that for a while, didn't you? Uh, for a while, to uh, go with the commercial thinking and the feeling of, uh, of uh, people's needs quick moments of uh, relaxation in a commercial sense. By commercial, I mean uh, a pop song of the day will either pick people up and you sing that song and it makes them good. Now Australia is, uh, is looking for real roots and identity. We have been influenced. Again, Australia has been influenced by the rest of the world in many ways. Now we, uh, I believe, are prepared to stand and say, hey, we're Australians. Let's... Uh, Let's listen more to what Australia has to say, and that's coming out in our music, in our drama, in our comedy and uh, art forms. You've just heard from the late Uncle Jimmy Little. He was speaking on the ABC back in 1988. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Uncle Jimmy's daughter, Frances Peters Little, is an historian, filmmaker and musician. She's publishing a forthcoming book on her father titled Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man. Frances, can you tell us where you grew up and what shaped your worldview? Well, I grew up around Balmain. I went to school there. When I was born, I actually, the first place we lived was in Redfern at top of Lawson Street there, just right next to the railway station. And then we moved to Balmain and, yeah, that's where I spent most of my life growing up. But uh, funny enough, it was mostly people in music, people who were singers or bands who really inspired me because I was more interested in music than anything else. Probably not surprising given your family, but just from your perspective, what are your fondest memories of your dad? My fondest memories of my dad. Look, I was one of those really lucky to have a, a great dad. I was an only child and he spoiled me rotten. Mum was a disciplinary person in the family. I think because my fondest memories of growing up that I missed a lot of school and I grew up with mum and dad being on the road, you know, New South Wales and Queensland and parts of Victoria. So I grew up 
travelling on the road with my parents from town to town. We'd get to a town and then we'd just, you know, unpack the gear at the town hall or the club or something and and I'd be backstage, you know, so I can sleep through anything these days. Um, they put a little bed for me out the back or something. The next day we'd pack up and go on. We lived and moved around the country, meeting a lot of different peoples, playing music. It was just extraordinary times in the 1960s of being any artist, like musical artist, that was just exciting times. And, and I love those days. And I didn't get much school, but, you know, hey, I don't think I missed it. Well, I will just point out that you have uh, you have trained as an historian and you're a very accomplished filmmaker, so you obviously made up that time. What made you decide to write a biography of your father? That was really funny. The, the whole idea of me writing uh, my father's biography was definitely not my idea. I didn't want to do it. It was a time when it was just after Dad did Messenger album and people were asking about Dad doing a biography because there's never been one written before. So my parents discussed it. They told me. They said, we want you to write it. I said, no. I tried to find writers all over the place. I didn't think I was capable of doing it, you know. I was really terrified in a way that I wouldn't live up to the task. The thing was my parents insisted and insisted and I couldn't find anybody who would be the biographer and so I thought, oh, well, my parents wore me down and so that's what happened. I ended up writing it. What was your father's childhood like? Dad grew up in a really difficult time in the 30s he was born on Kamragunja Mission and the year he was born was the year that they had that particular mission manager, who McQuiggan, who um, is now famous for the way that he treated the Aboriginal people on Kamragunja Mission and how the people at Kamra went on a strike because of the conditions that uh, they had to live on uh, on Kamragunja Mission. The other part of my father's childhood was that his parents were both vaudevillians. So, you know, he went around watching his parents being musical and performing, but it wasn't always easy because they lived an itinerant lifestyle. They were always chasing where the work was, whether it was fruit picking or timber yards and, or, you know, occasionally just doing anything where they'd find a little bit of work here and there and selling things that they'd made, like boomerangs and stuff. And, you know, so it was really tough. It was really tough. And it's the way that I think that really hard time in the 30s in Australia for all Aboriginal people, including my dad and his family, it's amazing that they came out of it positive and determined. Of course, one of the things that's wonderful about your father's story is not just obviously his success as a musician, but this feels like there's a wonderful love story in his life. How did he meet your mum and what was their relationship like? What was she like? Oh, my mum had a very different lifestyle to my dad growing up. She grew up in northwest New South Wales around Lightning Ridge and then Walgett. 
and her father worked on a station and her mother was a domestic in the town. But she came from a big family and they all stuck together remarkably because those days people were still early days of running around taking kids. And so when she moved to Sydney in the 50s and my dad moved to Sydney from the South Coast in the 50s, it was really a time of when government policies were all about assimilation for Aboriginal people to make them fit in. And so they'd moved to the city independently and there was a really huge uh, Aboriginal community that already existed in Sydney in the 50s and a lot of people came down from the country towns and they there used to be football teams like the Redfern All Blacks, the Laparoos. There were always these dances that they put on, like barn dances that were Aboriginal performers. And so it was one of those times when there was a barn dance on at the Waterloo Town Hall and they changed the partners and everything. And so Betty spotted my mother from the get-go. And when it was her turn to come around in the barn dance, he tried to be, you know, really cool and everything. And he knew then he was smitten. And he said to me, he said, look, I even loved her name. She had the most beautiful name, Marjorie Peters. So, you know, my mum said to him at that time, the first word she said to him was, oh, you're going to sing tonight. And he says, oh, yeah. She said, can I request a song? And he said, oh, yes, um, what is it? She said, could you sing Rosemary? And he said, well, I might. (laughs) (laughs) How did his success as a musician start to change the life of your family? A lot of people know the part about my father was in the 60s with the hit Royal Telephone, but he had success earlier than that. He was 16 years old. He'd come up and get on the radio. He won a, came second, sorry, in a talent quest. He appeared at different things even as a teenager. He wasn't going to see his father, never held him back. He just said, yes, it's all out there, son, go get it. And so he was always achieving and people noticed his talent from a very young age. And so he had hits on the radio station like Danny Boy and El Paso and this is in the late 50s, early 60s, long before Royal Telephone came along. He got a lot of work. He's on television all sorts of things. So his success was something that he just grew leaps and bounds and he just kept going with it. And both my parents, though, were pretty level-headed. They didn't really see themselves as being famous or any of that sort of stuff. That's how it affected him. And when I grew up with it, I just thought it was normal. It was anything different. I was going to ask you about that because I assumed it did feel normal and you talked about the moving around. It was great fun. When did you realise that your dad was actually quite a big deal? Oh, that's a really good question because I never really thought he was a big deal at all. <laughs> Um, I knew I knew other members of the family did, but I thought that's crazy. He was just dad. It was really important, I think, for my parents to not 
get overblown, you know, big-headed about anything. So that's, I suppose, why I didn't really think about it as a big deal. So what everybody went on television, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) I just wondered if you could share with us a little bit about the community work you did. As you say, people know Jimmy Little from his music, from his iconic songs, but he was very committed to giving back to the community. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the things that were close to his heart in relation to that. I think a part of what I address in the book is about the misconceptions that people had about my father as being somebody who just sang and didn't really care very much for the community. From the beginning of uh, his career, he was always involved in charities and things like that, that uh, not just Aboriginal charities, like children, homeless, all that sort of thing. He was very involved in those sorts of things of go out and perform to raise funds for them and things. And that just continued, of course. He was much involved with the foundation of Aboriginal affairs in the 60s which was people like Charlie Perkins and Chicka Dixon and a lot of really important people that were on the on board there and running the foundation's um, music concerts on the, on the weekend and even a cafe when the foundation opened a cafe. Um, they'd be down there serving milkshakes to people who come in and stuff. So... But there were other things too. I mean, it was like the 1967 referendum. My father was involved with the people of that time going out there and trying to... It was because the 67 referendum movement, it was about trying to show Aboriginal people as equal and Aboriginal people as able and successful and stuff like that. He really got involved with those sorts of things with people like Faith Bandler. And I'm just trying to think of calling Clegg's mother. Joyce. Yeah, Joyce Clegg. And they went out and, you know, wherever they could to sort of raise the profile of positive images of Aboriginal people. And then following from that, he always went to these different events and showed his support even with the football, the first Koori knockout, the dad got behind and sponsored the Koori United football team and they took out the grand final in the first one, I think. I think they did. And then just always on committees and boards and all sorts of things. But he always asked by the media. He was always invited to speak on television or radio about Indigenous issues. He never shied away from those things. He gave his own view on those things. Dad always knew that there was something really amazing about Aboriginal people that knew that we had a charm and a goodness and talent. And he always promoted that. And so when people thought that he wasn't political enough, It all depends what you think by the word political. He wasn't out there marching and flying flags, but he was doing a lot of other stuff. And because of his nature as a quiet, gentle person, he didn't blow his own horn on that. Well, it's wonderful to have your insights into him in a book that will allow us as readers to 
appreciate him as a much more well-rounded, thoughtful, engaged person. Is that your hope that audiences will start to see him differently? Well, I think even towards the end, my father ran a foundation. He was involved very much in promoting healthy living for Aboriginal people, travelled everywhere in communities all over the country, talking about Aboriginal people and health and promoting the art because he had to go on dialysis there for a while, that there was life after dialysis because so many Aboriginal people die of kidney failure. It's really important, I think, to me, it wouldn't have been so much important to mum or dad that people get over that stuff about Jimmy Little didn't care about his community. That's a lot of rubbish. Just finally, was there ever any piece of advice or something he said to you that you've held really closely? I think what stuck out for me was that my parents really, he believed to be about being independent. He said it'll cost you a lot. But being independent is worth it. That's pretty much what I think I've tried to do. I'm not a very good party politics person. I'm not a very good party person, full stop. I think that that's what he went through. It was about you had to be independent. He had his eyes on the prize, moving forward, reaching his dreams. And that's the message I think he wanted to put out there for me and, and others. It's wonderful and it's all captured in your book. Frances, thank you so much for coming on, speaking out and sharing those wonderful reflections on your dad and giving us a bit of an insight into what's in the new book. Thank you, Larissa. Historian, filmmaker and musician Frances Peters-Little. Her forthcoming book, Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man, is published by Hardy Grant. I was born on the banks of the Murray Yorta Yorta is my mother's tribal stand I'm her son, but my father's name I carry As I walked through this great and ancient land My father taught me all the things I needed Like identity and dignity with love From his southern tribal coastal ways of living Wallaga Lake and Gulagoon Mountain I was I'm a curry and I come from Cumbregundra Where my people and my dreaming all began Someday I know I will be returning Like the legend of my tribal My tribal ways are strong and not forgotten. And 
though my city ways of living, well, they may be grand, but you know, I could pack it up, yes, and leave it all tomorrow, and go back to my yorter, yorter clan. The nature of the bush in all its beauty gives me strength in my will to understand that no matter where I go my river people will be waiting for this yorder yorder man I'm a I come from Cumberlander Where my people and my dreaming all began Someday I know I will be returning Like the legend of my tribal Like the legend of my tribal boomerang Like the legend of my tribal That's legendary Aboriginal singer-songwriter Uncle Jimmy Little with Your to Your to Man. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore the concept of justice reinvestment with Professor Chris Kinnean. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.